Hello, and welcome to an all-new season of 13, the podcast where Colgate University community members answer 13 questions about their work. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today we will be speaking with Dean of Students, Dorsey Spencer Jr., and Director of Residential Life, Danielle Need. I am very excited because this kicks off our new season, and I'm more excited to do it with an in-depth chat uh, with our guest here about the student experience at Colgate, uh, particularly with new students uh, arriving very soon. We're recording this um, a little bit less than a week before arrival day. And um, there is a lot going into getting the campus ready uh, for students to come back. And I suspect some folks listening to this episode might be traveling to campus for their first time uh, or for their first semester, at least. Um, So I want to make sure we talk a bit about what new students and returning students can expect as they get to campus this year. Dean Spencer joined Colgate in June of 2020. Prior to coming to Colgate, Dean Spencer was the Director of Administration for the Office of the Vice President of Student Affairs at Florida State University. He draws on a dozen years of experience in higher education administration, including work at American University of Nigeria, Bucknell University, and UMass Amherst. Spencer has taught classes at FSU on black male leadership and has served as a facilitator for a number of student support training sessions. Dean Spencer earned a bachelor's degree at Temple University, a master's degree from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and his PhD from FSU. Danielle Need started her tenure at Colgate in July of 2020, and she comes to campus with a wealth of experience, including having served as the resident director, director of recreation, fitness, and sports for Semester at Sea. That's the study abroad on a boat. Yes. <laughs> uh, prior to Semester at Sea, Danielle worked in a number of residential life roles at St. U- Louis University, the University of Maryland, and Colorado State University. Danielle earned her Bachelor of Arts at Florida International University, her Master of Science at Western Illinois University, and her Doctorate of Philosophy in Higher Education at St. Louis University. Dorsey and Danielle, welcome to 13. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I always start the podcast off uh, by laying the foundation, and I think it's uh, appropriate here to start off with kind of understanding what uh, each of you does at Colgate. And um, I think to, to start things off, I'd like uh, Dean Spencer to tell us a little bit about what the Dean of Students is responsible for here. So the Dean of Students at Colgate University is responsible for curating the out-of-the-classroom experience, the majority of the out-of-the-classroom experience minus <laughs> residence life, which Danielle oversees. Um, so that would include the Alana Cultural Center. That would include the Office of the Chaplains, Fraternity and Sorority Life, Fraternity and Sorority Advising, um, the Center for Leadership and Student Involvement, the Shaw Wellness Institute, and the Office of LGBTQ Plus Initiatives. Um, so it's about six areas in total, but they collectively over everything includes student government, student organization, student media, uh, a lot of the social and cultural events and, and programs that are on campus. But it, it really is much of what students get involved with outside of their their academic studies at a university. Nice. Danielle, can you talk a little bit about what the uh, director of residential life is responsible for at Colgate? 
Yeah. So in the uh, Office of Residential Life, we have really two components to um, the office. One part of that is housing operations. So the things that most people think about when they think of housing, you're talking about your housing assignment, your physical location on campus, um, and you know all the pieces and campus partners that fold into that. The other piece of it, though, is and where we spend most of our time is truly on the residential experience and the residence life side. So most of the staff in our department are really focused on shaping these wonderful communities, shaping uh, great opportunities for growth for students, um, for their own development during the time that they're living with us in the halls. Um, So my days are spent usually split uh, between those two things, often falling a bit more on some of the housing operations side. Um, And in particular, with some of the um, ways that we're looking at projecting for future classes on campus, construction and renovation projects that need to happen, those are some things that fall um, in my portfolio that no one else really focuses on day to day. I guess it's also appropriate here to to ask where everyone is staying this year. Now, I know we had record applications last year, and we have a very large incoming class, and some of the off-campus study opportunities have been canceled, although not all of them. I understand it's uh, kind of scattered. It depends on where, and most of those that were canceled were domestic. But um, curious as to where we found rooms for everyone. Yeah, we were very fortunate that uh, we had built Burke and Pynchon a couple of years ago, and so that allowed us to have more space available on campus for students. Um, That gave us around 200 additional beds that I think Uh, Colgate's been very comfortable sort of having that additional space in our inventory. And so students maybe had some double as single rooms previously or didn't have completely full apartments or houses around campus. Um, But I uh, have relayed to a lot of students and parents that a goal of any residential life department in the country is really to be close to 100 percent occupancy. And so um, with both a large incoming class and then some of those study abroad opportunities not being able to happen this year. Um, That means we're very full for the fall semester. Um, So we have, uh, with the first year class, about uh, almost 900 students that will be in that class and living with us up the hill. Again, the addition of Burke and Pynchon really allowed us to have enough space for those students to be able to reside with us, though. Um, Down the hill for our upper class students, uh, things got a little bit tighter Um, And we did have to take on utilizing the Went University Inn as a space for some additional housing for us. But again, that's because of some of those off-campus study opportunities that unfortunately students aren't able to go on. We anticipate for the spring semester, though, that hopefully uh, the world will have a bit of a better handle on COVID and that a lot of our students are anticipating if they weren't already going on an off-campus study opportunity, that they will take advantage of that in the spring. And so we'll gain uh, quite a few spaces back on campus for the spring semester with our upper-class students. Okay. Yeah. And for background, too, the Went University Inn was a private uh, hotel in uh, the village of Hamilton. And um, the university bought that last year uh, to have space for isolation and quarantine um, when we returned to campus uh, in 2020. Um, and now it's going to be regular housing. And then eventually it will become a hotel again. Yes, yes, correct. So um, students will be there in the fall semester. A good point of clarification is that no one will be there for quarantine or isolation. That will be in a different location. So it is fully student housing for the fall. And then in the spring semester, we anticipate turning that back over um, to be a hotel property. 
Nice. So about how many people do we, how many students do we have living on campus now for the fall? Like how many beds are full? Yeah, we're really close to almost 3,000 students with us for the fall semester. So we're about 2,900. That continues to fluctuate day to day as students continue to make personal decisions um, about what they need for this upcoming fall semester. But uh, we are a very full house, so to speak, this fall. All right. And I know that we... While there has been a lot of work to prepare for a fall semester that was a lot closer to a normal year, obviously the emergence of the Delta variant has complicated matters. And I know folks on campus uh, are keeping tabs on that both nationally and in the local area. Um, I wonder if uh, Dorsey and Danielle, if you can talk a little bit about what students can expect when they arrive on campus this year. Sure. So we, you can expect to be able to come back and, and host or, or, or attend an array of events and programs on campus, right, where we're very much loosening many of the restrictions that we had last year. So we expect to see a much more vibrant <laughs> um, institution and students uh, connecting with one another and getting involved in different organizations and being able to do things that they really want to do outside of the classroom. There may be some some particular uh, precautionary things that we ask them to do. But overall, we really want to, as much as possible, get back to the new normal, which would include students being able to do what college students typically do um, in their social life and and, and their professional development, their holistic development. We're looking to definitely um, (laughs) put COVID somewhat behind us, but still making sure we keep an eye on it. So um, I'm excited for, for this year and this fall, and I hope the incoming students are as well. Um, I think we have a, a lot of an array. We have a lineup of a whole bunch of events and programs, such as Alana Palooza. We have Fall Fest. We have Homecoming. Um, in the spring, we'll have Queer Fest and all these uh, other types of uh, traditional events and programs at, that Colgate tends to have. So, I, I really hope that students get excited about coming back, and and we're ready to welcome them. Nice. And of course, there is a we do have a vaccine requirement for uh, students, faculty and staff with uh, exceptions for uh, medical or religious reasons. And I understand as of I'm, I'm looking at the, the dashboard right now. And as of uh, let's see, as of yesterday, as of I guess I should say August 17th at 1 p.m., uh, we had a grand total of 94.8 percent compliance with that. Uh, and that is both faculty and staff and students. Um so those are good numbers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I know when students arrive, they will uh, have to take a rapid test. Um, and then from then, there is going to be a short period of um, requirements for wearing masks for the first five to seven days until the second test is uh, complete and comes back. And then after that, the uh, the hope is to, uh, to open things up a little bit more. So I think there's a lot of excitement Um building. Yeah. I mean, I think this last year was so difficult for everyone with COVID. Um, All of us as staff, the faculty on campus, this isn't what we're used to in a college environment and definitely not uh, what we signed up for when we started these positions. So I think, as Dorsey said, we're really looking forward to having a vibrant campus. Um, We've heard feedback from a lot of our students. It was really difficult to connect this last year and to have that sense of community. 
And one of our main goals is to make sure that students have a sense of belonging at the institution, that they feel like they are a Colgate student and that those around them, both their peers and faculty and staff, are here to support them through this journey that they're on um, during their time at the institution. So um, we're really excited to get back to some of those in-person events and initiatives. Also, just to have more face-to-face contact with the students. Um, Our community leaders will uh, continue to do what they do best, which is going, knocking on doors, meeting people, knowing their names, their stories, um, you know, making them feel a part of that community for uh, the time that they're residing in that in that commons or in that building on campus um, and really making sure that they're getting connected with the things that they want to be connected with on campus and also hopefully providing them a little bit of growth opportunities and some challenges, uh, stretching them outside of their comfort zone along the way. But again, we're really excited to be able to get back to some of that uh, face-to-face contact and really helping this to feel, once again, like it's a full campus community. We used the tagline last year, Colgate Together, um, and yet at the same time, it felt like we were very distanced and apart in order to be together physically on campus. So now we're looking for more of uh, the great feelings that come with being a part of a community. Can you talk a little bit about, so every student that comes to Colgate gets placed into a residential commons, right? Um, How does that work? How do they get selected? You know, uh, why are they selected for a specific commons? And then what do they get out of it? What is is the goal of a residential commons? Yeah, that's a wonderful question because I'm not sure the commons is always completely understood on this campus. Um, So uh, the commons is a way to really help create these smaller communities for folks out of this larger residential campus. Um, So we've got about 225 students in each of the commons as first-year students, and then about the equivalent as sophomore students as well. Once you're in a commons, you're always a part of that. I sort of liken it to your Hogwarts house um, in Harry Potter, right? We have four commons. Um, So Brown, Maple Dark, Colgrove, Chaconi Commons, and Hancock Commons. Um, so students uh, are, are uh, placed into a commons based on their first-year seminar class. So all incoming first-year students sort of rank order different topics that would be of interest to them for a first-year seminar. The registrar's office then places them into their first-year seminars. And from there, we match up a variety of the first-year seminars with the commons. There's no one particular type of first-year seminar in a commons. We try to make sure that they're very uh, diverse. So it's not all the humanities first year seminars are in one particular commons and all the hard sciences are in another. But again, that there uh, there's a wide portfolio within each commons um, so that the students are able to then have the most diverse experience when it comes to people that may have interests different than theirs. And they can really learn from some of the co-curricular experiences then created within the commons. Um, From there, then, obviously, we have uh, certain buildings affiliated with each of the commons. So your commons placement drives, then, the buildings that are open to you for housing selection. Um, And then students live within a commons for their first two years on campus, Um, so first year and sophomore year. They can change between buildings um, and their second year, pick friends they may want to live with, but uh, they're always a part of that commons. And even junior and senior year, when folks move down the hill, you're still uh, welcome, and we would love to see your participation within commons events, um, helping to mentor some of the upper class students. Just because you're not physically living within commons buildings doesn't mean that uh, you're you're not still part of a commons on campus. I see. And do they each 
host their own events and things? Yeah, so there's uh, faculty um, and staff that are a part of each of the commons. Um, and so some folks are faculty affiliates. We have commons co-directors that are faculty and staff. And then our uh, residential life staff are also a part of those commons. So they work to create um, both just experiential learning opportunities and then experiences that are also connected with uh, classroom learning. So some of that ends up being just fun events that students go to to build community, right? Our commons is going to go to the dining hall together or we're going to celebrate someone's birthday. Um, and then some of that might be, again, connected to uh, content in the first year seminar and bringing some of that learning outside of the classroom. Nice. And then, so students move in, they get selected for their commons. Do they know about their commons ahead of time? Or are they... They do, yes. So uh, once students are placed into a first-year seminar, the registrar releases their course schedule. And then just after that, they receive a welcome letter um, saying, this is the commons that you're now a part of. We're so excited to have you. Um, I think that uh, some students call our office wondering if one commons is better than another or a particular set of buildings is better than another. And what I like to tell students and families is that they're, they'll probably encounter some folks that say my commons is the best or my building is the best. And that's not really about uh, that particular commons or building, but it's really about the community and people's participation and engagement in the initiatives and events within that commons. So everyone thinks that their buildings are the best. Everyone thinks their commons are the best. There's a lot of pride that goes into that. Um, and so students coming to campus, it's really about engaging in those opportunities that are available for you through the commons. Can you folks explain, so then students move in, they, they know their commons, they kind of go through, you know, welcome, convocation, Talk a little bit about orientation. Is there um, how how we do student support um, within the residence halls? Um, I know that we have a link system and community leaders. People might not know what those are. Um, I'd be curious to hear, uh, I guess, how we manage um, helping new students kind of get acclimated to Colgate. Yeah, absolutely. So the key thing is orientation, right? In some cases, pre-orientation, but orientation is meant to help students essentially get oriented to the institution, right? To be welcomed to the institution, to start to build and uh, build their sense of community, right? Whether that's in their commons, whether that's with uh, specific groups of friends they meet through various events and programs, but it is a very much a an assist a program is meant to assist with transition, right? To help ease the minds of students and their parents as they become college students. So they have some sessions that are more informational, right? Some that are more developmental and some that are more social throughout that, that time period. Um, and, and what that, what that does is it, it really helps, um, I guess, build their comfort level with a new environment, right? And, and that's what we hope to do. And then transitioning beyond orientation, we essentially do about six weeks of extra programming, right? To provide more opportunities for them to engage with the campus, to engage with each other, to learn what they like and don't like. So for example, the involvement fair, which will be on September 2nd, that'll provide an opportunity for them to see all these different student organizations that they might be interested in and to try to try out different things. We encourage students to try something different than what they're used to, to, to expand their horizons, if you will. So that's, that's essentially what Orientation helps guide them into that, and it's the official welcome to the university with convocation and some of those activities. And then um, 
you know, many of our areas between Danielle and myself, we, we try to create a sense of home, right, for, for those individuals or a new home for those individuals, um, which, you know, for some people is easier than others, right? But we we have things in place such as the links, right, which at other institutions would essentially be called our orientation leaders, right? But they, they, they have more of a year-long partnership and, and connection with our students. And then our CLs, which Danielle can talk more about, are more like our resident assistants at other institutions, right? So um, different terminology, but the same concept behind them of having someone, a, a peer in the residence hall with you, but also someone who's not necessarily in the residence hall with you, but has guided you or welcomed you, right? And almost mentored you into the institution. Yeah, I think um, for our community leaders in particular, they all sign up to be student leaders largely because they had somebody that was really influential in their experience in transitioning to the institution and in finding their sense of belonging and home. And they want to be able to give that back to other students as well. Um, so our community leaders are there to be a peer support, a peer mentor, a guide to students. I think, unfortunately, sort of the term RA in the media has gotten a bad rap for the person that's like the disciplinarian, right? Um, and folks are like, oh, the RA is going to get you. Um, <laughs> and that's that's really, I think, the, the most unappealing part of the position for anybody that signs up for a community leader role. They, you know, know that as a part of their position, we do ask them to review policies and procedures with their residents and to have some accountability there. But I mean, they're spending so much of their time just trying to get to know each person individually and support them through this experience that it's so difficult then when they do have to confront those pieces. And they come to us concerned then, what's going to happen to my relationship with this person or the community? Or there, is there going to be fallout from it? So um I hope that folks can really see the community leaders as somebody that's there to be that, again, peer mentor, peer support, get them connected to campus, um, to be that listening ear when they have something that's going on in their life. If it's I'm just missing home and I want someone to talk to or I'm really struggling with a course or I'm really struggling with just being here at Colgate. Um, and so I think the community leaders do a wonderful job. We spend um, almost two weeks with them in training from 8 a.m. until 8 or 9 p.m. Oh, wow. um, where they are really working on these types of scenarios and how to be the best student leader and resource for uh, other peers on campus. Wow. How many community leaders are on campus now? Yeah, we have almost 80 community leaders across campus. Um, so that averages to uh, up the hill about one community leader to every 30 to 35 residents. Um, down the hill, uh, it's a bit of a different spread. Sometimes it's about one community leader to every 40. In some cases in the apartment areas, it's one community leader to about 90 students. Okay. Um, but regardless, again, I think they're they're very invested in making sure that students are having a wonderful experience at the institution. All right. And then, uh, Dorsey, I know you touched a little bit on clubs. How many clubs and activities are, uh, I guess, fully functioning at Colgate right now and uh, ready for students to join and uh, pitch in? So I would estimate it's probably around 150. So we range generally between 150 and 200. I think uh, <laughs> the pandemic has not helped us. I think some organizations may have um, maybe in a uh, suspended animation, if you will, <laughs> on pause for the moment. But um, we're hoping that most of those organizations will return and to get um, quite a few new ones as well, which students can create if they can't find an organization that appeals to them and their friends. They, they can develop an organization. But we also plan to have, on average, we probably have hundreds of events and programs across the university, right? So 
that goes from lectures to concerts to comedy shows to trivia nights, right, to um, just social hangout type of events, to arts and crafts. So there, there's always something to do at Colgate, whether people admit it or not. There's always something going on, um, even on weekends, right? There, there's always something that students can go to and connect with other people. Um, the Commons also do tons of events and programs in addition to the ones that the offices that I oversee do. So there, there really is, there is really an opportunity for people to connect and meet other people and go to places with their friends and hang out beyond, you know, some of the typical things you may hear in a college setting, right, which are the par parties and stuff. But um, if a student is, is having any trouble connecting, right, they can either reach out to the Center for uh, Leadership and Student Involvement, and we have an involvement calculator. And essentially what they can do is they fill out this survey, which talks a little bit about their interests and passions. And within a week, uh, my staff will send them back a uh, curated list of opportunities to say, hey, this is based off this survey. You said you were interested in these things. Here's a list of opportunities that you can get engaged with. Now, if a student really, really can't find anything, right, they can feel free to to reach out to me as dean of students, and we can hopefully connect them with something, whether it's in residence life or one of my other areas that will help them build a sense of community. But we really, really do want students to connect to the university and, and build a sense of community and sense of belonging. We, we understand and know um, from research and our own professional experiences that that is a vital component of student success, right? Yes, of course, you want to excel in the classroom, obviously, but your ability to connect with others, to get involved, to to find your niche, right, if you will, um, is, is vital to the overall success of a student in college. I think something that Dorsey and I talk about uh, frequently as well is that we want students to co-create these experiences with us. Mm -hmm. We want that feedback and that engagement with students. I think both of us in our careers are very used to having a lot of that direct student contact and feedback. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as Dorsey said, there are things that are being provided by, you know, the institution, our offices, the structures that we have in place. But we also really welcome opportunities for students to bring ideas to the table to say, these are things I'd love to get involved with. Um, so I think both from student organizations and then on the residential life side of things, I mean, I started off as a first year student in a residence hall, uh, first generation college student. My dad said, you go to college and don't get involved in anything like you did in high school because you need to focus on <laughs> academics. Um, and I was bored out of my mind after, you know, not that my classes weren't engaging, but what was I doing with all the rest of my time? And so... I started to say to, I had a resident advisor, but the equivalent of a CL, you know, hey, uh, I, can I help with your bulletin boards? I've, <laughs> I've noticed you're maybe uh, a little bit challenged in the, in the design area. I'd love to be a part of shaping some of that for our floor. And then I came forward with some ideas for events that we could do based on talking to my peers on the floor. Um, and so he ended up saying to me, you know, you'd be a really great hall council representative. Have you thought about doing that? That's really kind of what started my own journey into residence life. I um, joined the hall council. I was our floor representative. Then I went on to be a resident advisor myself. Um, and then eventually, you know, as you read from my resume, doing hall director and assistant director of res life and living learning programs and all those wonderful things. So um, at Colgate, we have some commons councils, so our students are able to get involved with those common councils and also help to create experiences that are happening in residential life and to say these are programs or events that we'd like to see or here's things we'd like to advocate for within the residential spaces. 
Um, and also just talking to their CL, right? The CLs are always open to new ideas of things they could be shaping for the community. So someone could also, I guess, uh, take the same path that I did and just say, hey, you know, I want to help out with some things in the community. Here are some ideas that I have. I think the CLs would be very open to that. I also, I, I think Dale makes a really good point about that level of involvement potentially changing your trajectory, right? So for me, uh, being at a large institution, a relatively large institution from my undergrad, I wasn't as involved at my my first and, and, and my second year, um, but it was when I got into my major, which was uh, sports management, I originally wanted to <laughs> get my degree so I could be a college athletic director. I thought that was a cool you know, job, a college athletic director at a D1 school. So an opportunity when I was in the student union one day that they were publicizing was um, the homecoming committee. Right. And I figured, you know, well, that's connected to college athletics. Right. Right. It's a uh, there's a there's some development that will happen there. And what I didn't realize is you actually work much more with the student affairs. Right. Or the dean of college here side of the institution when you do homecoming. Yes, there is a athletic component, um, but ended up uh, running or, or applying for that position and being selected. Right. We have a in my major. There was a lot of event planning and, and development that happens or training for those type of things in, in my major. So it made sense for me to take on that role, but it was the first time that students had really run homecoming at my institution, right? So we actually set up the 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 series of events and programs and introduced some new things and developed a logo and did marketing. Um, we had a, a great concert with the Roots and all these different things, right? So it was that was really what opened the door for me that kind of pulled me to the student affairs side instead of the athletic side. Um, because I had great conversations with my dean of students at the time um, and who said, you know, you, you probably should career, consider a career in student affairs. And at first, I, you know, I didn't really take it seriously. Um, but as I continued in my student leadership journey, it became more and more evident that this was something I was passionate about. Not to say everyone will become a higher ed professional or a student affairs professional, but it can be those type of experiences that really help students understand what their what their passion is, what their calling is, where um where they find a sense of purpose or belonging. So I encourage students to get involved because it really does shape how you move forward and move through your college experience. Hmm. I'm curious, you both have a lot of experience both in residential life and student support. And I, I, I'm really curious how that has changed over the years, you know, over the past 10 years, philosophically, right? Has Is there a different way that colleges and universities think about residential life on campus and student support on campus? Um, and how has, you know, how have you seen that evolve? It's a really good question. I think it really depends on the institution and, and the, the environment that you're in, right? So urban institutions would have something different. Rural institutions might have something different. But there are some common themes across the board, right? So the idea that we are truly um, student affairs educators, right? So idea that we are helping a student develop more holistically so that they are well-rounded I, you know, I, a well-rounded individual. Um, so yes, they learn what they learn in their major and their academics, but there's a lot of lessons that are taught outside of the classroom, right? How to interact with people, how to build connections, how to, um, you know, even things like career readiness, right? Are things that usually take care, take place in, in, in student affairs. So I, I think over the years, we've become a lot more uh, tech savvy as a field, right? Engaging technology and um, using those things to really engage with students. I think we've moved over the last 10 years from, uh, we tended to do a lot more print, 
right, type of things for outreach, so booklets and posters and <laughs> flyers and all those type of things, right? And we've moved much more to digital, so social media and websites and, and podcasts, right? We've we've moved away to that in order to meet our students where they are. And that's, I think, the key thing with, with student affairs and higher education is as populations and generations change, right? We went from, you know, millennials to Gen Z, and the next will be Generation Alpha, right? So thinking about what is what are the signature components of that generation and how do we meet that? I think over the years, uh, institutions have had to lean a lot more into supporting student mental health, right? We've had to lean a lot more into uh, meeting the uh, the needs of students. And by that, I mean things like food insecurity and, um, you know, students who may, may be uh, challenged with housing issues, right, or issues back at home that college universities may have not really taken on in the past. It may have been, that, well, that's kind of that student's personal problem. Right. I think more institutions have actively um, tried to take more of a holistic approach in supporting their student, right? Of how do we help this student who, you know, I'm thinking about one institution where uh, I had a student who was homeless, right? And and how do I help this student not only persist through and graduate, but how do I get them involved, right? How do we make sure they have the resources that they need? How do they get the support that they need? So I think institutions have taken on much more uh, or have become much more robust in our ability to support students beyond what we would have thought about 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and I think that looks different based off the population you serve, right? So different populations need to do different things. Um, I think diversity, equity, and inclusion has become much more of a forefront, right? As the institutions and as the world, right, becomes increasingly diverse, as the United States becomes increasingly diverse, it, it, it behooves institutions to really train and develop students to be able to engage right in a diverse world right in a multicultural world and and we do our students a disservice by not doing that so i think you you will see many more institutions than before who have chief diversity officers right or, or vice president of inclusive excellence or what have you who really look at what is the institution doing to better itself and to become more welcoming um there was a, a, an individual i met a few weeks ago who said how are we being good hosts right good stewards right you wouldn't um, invite people to your house and kind of just say, fend for yourself, right? You you would essentially put things in place so that they felt welcome, right? And the same idea goes for colleges and universities. What what do we put in place to make sure that all students that we we admit and come to and enroll in our institution feel welcome, have a sense of belonging, have what they need to be successful, right? And that's essentially what, what DEI is, right? At the end of the day is how do we help students feel like they belong, like they have a sense of ownership of the institution that they should be here, right? Um, and that's the day that they graduate and are successful in going to graduate school, what have you. Um, but I think that is a, a ongoing trend. Um, of course, things like accountability, right? When, when it comes to both the institution and the students, right? How does the institution do what it's supposed to do and how do we hold it accountable? And then how do we also make sure, sure that students are held accountable for their actions and that that in itself is an educational process, right? Conduct, um, for better or worse, it's not meant to be punitive, right? It is truly meant to be a developmental opportunity for us to have conversations and to help students truly understand that, hey, you can't do these things in the world, or this is not a healthy behavior, or you are potentially a threat to the community because of this behavior. But I think all of those things, right, in, in, including, you know, just ongoing trends, right, just being a more global society and um, having more international students, right? How do we cater to students from different cultural backgrounds, not just race or ethnicity? So I, I think con constantly um, institutions are 
wrestling with these questions and how to do those things better rather than being stagnant or saying we only do this much, right? I think we are constantly assessing what are the needs that students uh, really, really, um, what are the needs we really need to address to make sure that students are successful in their time here at Coolgate? Um, that's a hard act to follow for this question. Um, I think just a couple things I would add. In, in my time in higher education, I mean, if we get to count undergraduate years, I'm coming up on 20 years uh, this fall. And I think that institutions, it, because of what's happening in our larger society, very much feel this pressure to be a business and to have to sort of serve a population. And I think that's something we struggle with in residential life quite a bit because folks come to us and saying, well, you're providing a service and the service is physical housing. And what we're used to is really providing a community and being educators. And so we've got a pretty big gap in terms of what people come in expecting from our department and what we actually do. Um, and I think as well, you know, it, it's difficult sometimes because the way that systems are set up, not every single student is going to obviously get every single thing that they want their number one pick. That happens with course registration. It happens with housing. And I think there's a lot of pressure for folks to say, this is, you know, what I'm expecting out of the institution as a business, as someone that's here um, to sort of serve me in my educational pursuits. And so, again, I think to all the wonderful things that Dorsey spoke to, you know, we're really trying to figure out who are students, how do we best support them, how do we help them grow and develop through these experiences. And yes, there are some things that we provide along the way and that are maybe services driven, but more so I think our time is spent really on some of these larger questions about who are students? Who are they becoming? How do we help them to become global citizens and civically engaged um, and productive parts of their community? So I want to, I guess that's a good segue into one of the things that Colgate does provide is we guarantee housing for four years, right? We, we say, if you want to live on campus at Colgate, we will provide that for you. You'll have the option of living on campus for four years. Now, where it gets, um, I think, confusing sometimes or some people don't quite understand how it works is that seniors – and help me out here. Is it some juniors too or is it just seniors? Yeah. So uh, I, I get where your question is headed and right. it's wonderful because um, at Colgate, it's not just an option to live on campus for four years, but we actually are a four-year residential campus. If you look at the student handbook and as a requirement for graduation, there is a residency requirement. And so it does account for students being able to do those off-campus study opportunities um, and that that will still count. But ultimately, we do have an expectation that students will be on campus with us for four years. Um, so we do have what you're getting at is uh, an, a private off-campus housing lottery process. Yes. It is only open to seniors. Um, and it's only about 30% of the senior class that actually ends up being awarded the opportunity to go to private off-campus housing. It is purely a lottery-based system. 
Um, so we do expect that students going into the process have a good conduct record. We do check um, that as a part of the process just to make sure um, that folks have sort of, in some ways, I guess, earned that ability to go off campus, have shown their maturity and responsibility levels. But otherwise, it's purely application-based. Students must apply to be part of the process. Um, they do that in fall of their junior year. Um, and then we run the lottery process after that. I get lots of phone calls in my office of people saying, but please, I'm on the wait list and can't you, you know, bump me up? Can't you please provide off-campus housing? Um, and in my mind, I'm sort of like, this is the Powerball, right? Like your number didn't fall out and the integrity of the process would be subject to scrutiny by other students if we started then making exceptions to that um, or sneaking slots like under the table. So we've been really uh, strict about holding to uh, the integrity of the process and that students that receive a space through the lottery receive a space. Um, obviously, if somebody declines their space to off-campus housing, then we start going down the wait list um, to, to make more students uh, be able to have that opportunity. But again, it's only about 30% of seniors um, that have that. And so something that we do is we start messaging to first-year students, please do not sign a lease off campus until you know that you have applied gone through the process and been selected through the lottery. Um, I think there's a little bit of like a panic that ensues in folks to say, you know, I have to sign a lease and I'm going to do it my freshman or sophomore year and then just hope for the best in the lottery process. Um, we're not short on housing in Hamilton in that way where students won't be able to find a space off campus if they receive a spot in the lottery. Um, actually, an issue that students ran into this year was that there were so many people holding on to leases, hoping they would still get a space in the lottery, even though they were maybe 50th on the wait list. And I was pretty transparent. Like at, at this point, 50th on the wait list, you're probably not coming off of that. Stranger things have happened, but um, it's highly unlikely that you will. And so students that actually did have off-campus housing through the lottery couldn't find a place to go to because landlords were sort of locked in with folks that were on the wait list. So truly what would be the best thing for our entire community is for everyone to just wait to see if they receive a space in the lottery and then after that to go and pursue spaces with the landlords. It would allow for everyone that, w that receives a place in the lottery to actually obtain off-campus housing for all the landlords to have their properties filled um, and for students then that didn't receive a place in the lottery to not be paying additional money um, with both being obligated to on-campus housing and now being contractually obligated to a lease off-campus. Hmm. Interesting. So I want to ask a uh, – I, I want to follow that up with a little bit of a real-world advice uh, question here. So – New student comes to campus, they move in, they love their room, they love their roommate, they love their classes, they get all their laundry together, they go down to the laundry machine, they get halfway through a cycle and the machine breaks. What do they do? So I'm curious about these kinds of like day-to-day -day things that just people go through in general. And for a student, they may have never encountered this before. Or if they did, you know, mom or dad or their grandma or whatever took care of it. So what happens? Yeah. Um, and uh, the, those things do happen, right? Because a lot of students come and they're like, I don't even know how to do the laundry. Like, where does the detergent go? <laughs> um, so if uh, something as specific as the laundry um, occurs, within each of our laundry areas, there's actually a phone number for our external vendor 
where uh, they're welcome to place a work order with facilities, but the fastest route for a laundry machine is actually calling the number that's posted for the vendor directly and reporting that there's an issue with the machine, and they'll send a service team out to come and repair that. That's the one thing that's separate from the rest of our residential facilities. Um, for most other things, if they encounter, you know, some type of concern with their space, maybe, uh, you know, folks got a little bit rowdy and now a door is hanging off the hinge a little, like I was a little rough on my closet door, um, or, you know, just something happens with a sink, uh, it, you know, in a facility, you would go ahead and place a work order is what we call it. Um, you just Google really residential facilities work order or um, that the acronym for the system is FAMIS, F-A-M-I-S. And then it'll ask you a series of questions. You'll log in with your student ID, um, then what space on campus, like what building, what room number, and then what specifically is the concern. And from there, our residential facilities and custodial team will go ahead and take a look at that work order and then put that into uh, the system to be serviced. So some of these things are not an immediate fix, um, but it is on our radar and they have sort of a priority ranking system. The other thing I would say is that if there's any technology issues, um, ITS also runs a similar process where students can call or put in a ticket as well for any ITS concerns that they're having. So if that's, you know, they can't get on the Wi-Fi, they're, you know, not able to connect their printer, maybe they're trying to use the, you know, grounded Ethernet port in the room and that's not working, those are all things they could go to ITS for. Okay. And to that same, you know, I guess the other side of the coin is less physical issues and more, um, you know, if they're having trouble uh, with, you know, a mental health problem, if students are having, you know, some other problem outside of the classroom, how do they go get that support? Where do they look? Where, what, who do they turn to, Dorsey? Yep. So it really depends on the situation, but a good go-to is the Ministry of Dean, right? So each student has an administrative dean that is there to support them throughout their time here at Colgate. And that, that person has a lot of different roles. They wear a lot of different hats, but they are a central resource for all students, right? So if you're facing a problem, more than likely your administrative dean can help you at least get to whatever you need to. So in the situation you, you, you named with the mental health challenge, they could refer you to the counseling center or even in some cases, walk you over to the counseling center, right? Um, but they are a central role. And then any staff member here at the university should be able to point you in the right direction. They may not have the answer um, or they may not be the point person for that particular thing. But generally, we are well-versed in the resources that the university has available. So we would be able to connect a student to those type of things, whether it's a, for a, a learning challenge, whether it's an academic challenge, we could tell them who to talk to. Um, but in most cases, depending on what the challenge is and the severity of it, you definitely want to get in contact with your administrative dean first, and then they probably will connect you to someone else unless it's something that they would oversee or handle. Um, but we we are we are we have the infrastructure to support students through most things, right? We have we have a health center, right? We have mental health services, right? Um, there are different offices that help students from different backgrounds. We have the first at Colgate program, right? That helps is another layer of support for our first generation students. So we we are in a good place for support services. It's more of the students uh, connecting with us, right? Like we can't help a student if we don't know what they need or they're not verbalizing what they need. And um, one of the key points I would love to, to, to talk about what we usually mention in, in the parent orientation is um, we really want to empower students to take ownership over their challenge. Right. We really want them to go and be the one to talk to the administrative dean or talk to the dean of students or whoever, rather than their parents. 
right? Because we really want this to be a developmental opportunity for them. And then, you know, we're, we're trying to prepare global citizens that will go out into the world. And ideally, if you're in a situation where the your 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 line your washing machine broke down or you're you're facing mental health challenges you as an adult would have to figure out how to get the support or or connect to the resources that you need so we really want to lean on parents and students to replicate that here at a college or at Colgate's more specifically that they will come down and, and, and parents they can they can you're more than welcome to support the student through that process and say hey I remember at orientation they said this, or I looked it up, and here's where you need to go and follow up with your student. But really encourage them to be the person that reports the issue in housing, that reports the the challenges that they're facing to their ministry of dean, that goes and talks to their faculty member when they're struggling in classes. Right? Um, it, it doesn't necessarily benefit the student to have the parent come in and, and try to solve the problem for them. Um, and, you know, if there's a major case and your student is not responsive and you you have a a major concern, definitely reach out to us, right? And say, my, my student said this, and I'm really concerned about X, Y, and Z, and we will look into it. But definitely encourage them to to take on and, and address some of the challenges that they have with the level of support as a parent. I would say one other thing is sometimes students encounter some of these concerns um, when it's outside of office hours, right? And so now where do I go? My administrative dean's gone home for the day, and I'm not sure that I can make it until tomorrow. This just feels like it's such a, a big issue that I'm grappling with, and it's impacting me so greatly. So we have uh, on-call structures in place to be able to respond to any of those student concerns. Um, one is, of course, uh, being in residence, you're welcome to seek out your community leader. The CLs know, um, and we spend quite a bit of time training on sort of uh, these types of responses, both for things that are mental health concerns, but as well as true emergencies that are happening. Um, if it's, you know, physically like a fire that's in the building, right? And what are we doing and how are we getting people out of the facility? So um, community leaders are a great place to go. Our area directors, so the full-time residential staff that live in our buildings and supervise the community leaders, also serve in an on-call rotation. And so um, the CL will call up to them if they're like, this is something that needs uh, more attention, the attention of a full-time staff member to be able to come and assist. Um, we'd also encourage folks to call Campus Safety. They have numbers for all of us around campus if something's going on in the middle of the night. So they can put a student in touch with a counselor on call, or um, a lot of us serve in the dean on call rotation. And so we can be called to come and assist a student. So um, Campus Safety is another great resource when these things are happening. Um, but often we do end up seeing where students have some type of, you know, crisis going on in their life and want to make sure that they know the resources available to them, both during office hours, but also outside of that and that the university is there to support them. That's great information. You've made it to question 13. So congratulations there. <laughs> um, so I, I, I want to end this episode with um, your advice to mom, dad, grandpa, uncle, aunt, whoever is traveling right now to Colgate um, or who have, you know, maybe already said, uh, you know, best wishes to uh, to their children and they've already come to campus. What what do you say to what advice do you give to parents um, dealing with um, maybe their first children leaving the nest and, um, you know, making that big step uh, to college? I think for me, an analogy I would love to use is um, for those who are familiar with 
racing, car racing. So like NASCAR, F1, right? There's these, the driver who's driving the car and then there's the pit crew, right? I would advise parents to be more of the pit crew, right? Who check in and, and help the student when they need it, but also is there to also provide guidance, right? You're in this position, you need to move up. This person's coming <laughs> up on your side, right? But at the end of the day, the parent can't drive the car, right? The pit crew can't drive the car, right? It's up to the student who's the driver to drive the car. And that's the role that I would encourage student uh, parents to take on with their student, right? To be there, to support them, to help fill up the gas and change the tires when that needs to happen, right? But also to provide a level of guidance and oversight in helping that student drive their own vehicle. So that that that's the best piece of advice I think I can give to uh, a parent who's um, dropping their student off for the first time or um, it's their their first time with with their their baby leaving home and going away to college. That that's a, an important piece that you really do want this the, the, your student to be successful and to stand on their own and be able to thrive in a college setting. And that's a little bit more challenging if they are able to um, lean on you as a parent for every aspect of their experience. Right, they're not really getting what college is meant to be, which is meant to develop students holistically. Um, so that they they are um, civically engaged global citizens as we want them to be here at Colgate. Yeah, I, I mean, it's such a tough time for parents and families to see their student going off to college. They're so excited usually about the opportunity. And then with that, parents, you know, feel all the nervousness and and maybe even a little bit of sense of loss of their student not being at home anymore. So I think what's wonderful for families, though, is that this is a time to employ sort of Socratic method with students, to ask a lot of really great questions of them to help guide them toward those answers. And that can be so difficult to do, um, especially when we're all tired parents sometimes and you're like, the easier thing is just to tell you how to do this or to do it myself. Um, but this is really an opportunity for students to learn and grow on their own. And so asking great questions um, of what they're doing with their opportunities, um, how things are going, and when they encounter a challenge to ask questions that help lead them toward the answer that they can then employ themselves. Um, having a 10-year-old son at home myself, you know, there are times where I know that he's not getting what he wants necessarily out of uh, my answer, but I also know that that's the best thing for him in that moment for him to be able to to learn and grow in that moment. And so um, I hope that parents are able to take away from this one that we've got so much support at the institution, so much care for their student, want to see them have a wonderful experience. And then from there, if their student starts to struggle, we're here to assist and we're also here to help them be a little bit challenged and to continue in their growth opportunities and to so, you know, pick up in some of uh, some of that um, ways that they're becoming, um, as Dorsey said, these global citizens. So I would just say that um, as your student starts to go through these growth opportunities at the institution, um, sometimes they're going to say, this is hard. This isn't, you know, necessarily what I wanted or I didn't get, you know, the answer I was hoping for. And that can be okay, too, because, again, we're here to support your student um, through all of their growth um, and their development during their time here. And hopefully for all of us to celebrate as a victory on the other side of their time at the institution that they've graduated and they're going on to do wonderful things in the world. Well, this was a great first episode back uh, for the new season of the podcast. Danielle and Dorsey, thank you so much for joining us here. 
Thank um, you for having us. Yes, thank you. That was 13. Uh, if you have any questions that for uh, Dean Spencer or Danielle Need, um, please feel free to send them to me. That's 13 at colgate.edu. And that's 13, the number. Uh, and until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.